Uh, we have started a new series, this term called Steadfast. And James uh, is writing to a, a bunch of Christians, and he calls them the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And uh, people have different you know, views on what that exactly means. But the, the one thing that's clear is this, is that they're not in one place. That they're dispersed, okay? We know that much. And they're a little bit like us as a church. We were once meeting in one hall, in one location. And then over the last 18 months, God has dispersed us into three glorious meetings over two locations, both here and in Whitstable. So we can, we can see parallels here between Scripture and our own lives as the church. I made the point that these guys were, they were following God's leading for them. They were clearly a bunch of Christians who, who weren't sort of inward and introspective, but they are on mission. They had, as it were, heard the missionary series that we did last term, and they've taken it to heart, and now we catch up with them a few years into their missionary zeal. And James is writing to them saying, go for it, guys, but look out for these little challenges. And this is why the book of James is massively relevant for us, because I know if you're here today and you love Jesus Christ, you're here because you say, Lord, I don't want a comfortable life. I don't want an easy peasy life. I want a life where I am pouring my life out through my lips and my lives to proclaim the reality of Jesus Christ to anyone who'll listen. Amen? Amen? Whether you're here in Canterbury or in Whitstable, we want to be missionaries. We want to be those who, who tell anyone who will listen the good news about Jesus. But as we are learning, mission comes with a price tag. There's challenges that these guys are facing that we will face and are already facing to some degrees. Last week, we made the opening comment that, that James really says, get ready, if you're going to go on mission, for trials. <laughs> you know, get ready for tests and challenges at every different way and level. But today, my friends, he zooms in on one absolute whopper of a trial that we will face if we continue to be on mission. And it's the trial of this, that as the church grows, as more and more people come and hear about Christ and they get saved, what will happen is the church won't just get bigger, it will get more diverse. You see, when humans try and build churches, we try and make it all like ourselves. Let's build the same. When God builds the church, it's full of completely random people at one level, but God has brought them together. Difference, glorious contrast we see. And that's a brilliant thing, but it's something that comes with challenge. It's something that we have to understand because the dark side of beautiful biblical contrast is comparison. Comparison. And today, I feel God wants to lovingly go to work on our hearts so that if there is even a whiff of comparison in our hearts, us comparing ourselves with others who are different, then God wants to lift it into our gaze and then bring glorious healing. I, I mentioned this actually to a, a lady uh, called Leanne Midson who's in the Whitstable location. And uh, just this week that I was going to be preaching on comparison, she went, oh, now I get it. She said, all week I've been watching those adverts. You know the Go Compare adverts? You ready for the little tune? Go compare, go compare. Yeah, anyway, the opera singer guy. And apparently recently they've been blowing him up. I haven't seen that, but apparently he's singing away and then they blow him up. Hilarious. And God was saying to her, God was saying to her, take note of this. Listen, God wants to blow up any spirit of comparison in your heart. And you know, for some of you, you have been living subtly or obviously under a sense of, I'm not like that person. 
for the whole of your life. And today, God's going to bring freedom. So, Father, I pray right now your spirit will invade this hall. I pray, God, for hearts and minds to be just gloriously open to you as we look at your word. Lord, we pray you will blow up any comparison in our hearts so that, Lord, you can continue to add, 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 add to this church. And we will celebrate diversity, ethnic diversity, age diversity, whatever you want to bring, Lord. We love it. Amen. Let's read from verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he'll pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he or she has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruit in his creatures. There's three things I want to just walk through today. And the first of them is this. He gives us a very specific example of what I've called the comparison trap. Did you spot it? Right at the beginning, those first few verses. He says, let the lowly brother, that's someone who's financially not very wealthy, but is a Christian. Boast in his exhortation and the rich, okay, or those who are rich, who are Christians. Let them understand their identity, not in terms of physical human terms, but in terms of their identity in Christ. You see, there is a, a massive danger as a church embraces mission and, and, and we connect with the world increasingly and we love and, we, and we're part of things and we're involved in our communities and our neighbors. Uh, and there's an increasing danger that James is just warning us against that we can be those who unwittingly are infected and affected by the thinking of the world. You see, this, this group of Christians, they're not being told, come on, guys, think about non-Christians. They're doing that big time. They are massively involved with connecting with people from every walk of life, which is superb. But the danger is, is that they could potentially then bring in a worldly snobbery or a worldly condemnation that God hates. You see, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I grew up myself <clears throat> definitely comparing myself just about with everyone else. Now, and this illustration that we start here is a very specific one. It's about money. Okay, so, so let's just allow that to just wash over us for a moment. Some of you here may be from wealthier backgrounds. Very simply put, James is saying, if you're a brother or a sister, if you're a Christian and you're rich, just be careful that you're not, you're not carrying into your walk any sense of false security in the wealth around you. I love this dramatic, vivid picture, which is so typical of James. You're like a flower that's going to fade, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're Steve Jobs, who owns the most 
valuable company in the world, or did, or whether you're just a nameless person in this world, we're going to fade, is what he's saying. We're going to fade. Do you know, 151,000 people die every single day. That's breathtaking. And it's sobering. And so it means that if we have been blessed in this world financially, which is not a bad thing, he just lovingly says, don't ever carry even a whiff of superiority into the Christian church. And, and also, if you're someone and you're just from a more humble background, you need to not look at yourselves, listen, with judging yourself in contrast. You see, we find our identity normally in contrast. I am who I am in contrast to her or him. He said, don't do that. Find your identity, not in contrast, but in Christ. He's saying here, in your exaltation, boast. In your exaltation, it's this theme again, the word here, boast, but it's very similar to the idea of take joy in that we saw last time we were together on this, on this passage. Take joy in, in your exaltation. As a Christian, what happens is you don't just get saved and become a Christian unforgiven. It says that you get united with God. You're exalted instantly with God. I mean, that's just what the Bible says. You might think Christians are crazy, and I don't blame you at one level. That's what it says. So you might be someone who's never had a dime financially, but it says when you become a Christian, you get exalted in a way that is just beyond comprehension. It's kind of a bit of a leveler is what he's saying. It's just amazing. It's why you can be a billionaire and be the most depressed person in the world, or you can be living in a mud hut in Africa, and just if you know Christ, you can be feeling like the richest person spiritually in the world. He's just nailing this. He's just saying, just make sure that your identity is in Christ. Your identity is not in contrast. And, but then I think what we can do is we can massively broaden this, not just to finances, because statistically, we are all wealthy in this nation. I know I say that a lot, but it is just true. And it's helpful for us to remember that. The clothes on, the, on your back, the car you came in, the shoes you're wearing, the shampoo that was through your hair, Whatever it is, is a reminder of the incredible wealth that we have. So we may not struggle quite so much with this, although I, I found this, I went to a very posh, I got a scholarship to a school which I could never afford to go to, and most of my mates were millionaires, literally. And I came from a very normal background. And I remember feeling at times when they would come into my house, just thinking, this is a little different to their houses, and feeling that sense of potential inferiority. But, but the thing is, even if it's not financial for you, probably it's something or many other things else. I remember growing up, uh, my, I was the youngest of three, and my older bro uh, was a complete dude, um, just effortlessly cool, man. And uh, I really wasn't. Uh, I'm still not, actually. But he was just so cool. Uh, six years older than me, just kind of socially Mr. Popular, string of girlfriends, just, you know what I mean? He was a drummer in a band, he was 16 years old, making albums, just a bit of a dude. And then there's me. Um, yeah, 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 I, I hit 11 years old, my, my, my face explodes with spots, uh, my crazy fuzzy hair, just struggling to have any sense of pff, identity or esteem. And then, and then, you know, we, we just go through our lives comparing ourselves with our brothers or our sisters or our mum or our dad, what estate you grew up in, where you come from, what school you went to, whether you're thin or larger or taller or shorter, what color your hair is. And then, and then you know, uh, come into Christian world, oh, I'm single. <gasps> Should I be married? 
That's a huge one, isn't it? We can compare ourselves and live under this horrific sense of comparison that God hates. We live under it. I'm a single parent. Is there shame in that? Shouldn't I be? Well, actually, God doesn't want us to be living constantly under a sense of comparing ourselves endlessly with each other. And then you might be someone who gets married and then you get married and you think, oh, you know, I'm married but I don't have kids. And then, then you have kids and then and you think, but, I, but I'm a renter. I don't own a home. So then you compare yourself with homeowners. So then you buy a home and then you're a homeowner but your home is a little bit dilapidated. So you've got to then compare yourself with the people who have done up their houses and then they've extended their houses and then, then you come to think about your kids going to school and what school should they go to and you compare the schools and, and then they go to school and then they start reading and then they're on level one and then level two and all oh, they go back to level one again and you're just endlessly exhausted by comparisons. It drives this world. It drives it. Do you know Ben Fogel, the traveling explorer, adventurer man? He recently in a newspaper said he is planning, are you ready for this? He's not going to swim the channel, which is pretty phenomenal anyway, which is 21 miles. He's going to swim the Atlantic. That's 3,000 miles. And he said in the article, my biggest thing I hate in, in this world is a sense of the fear of failure. So he's going to swim the Atlantic to have some sense of overcoming a sense of I'm failing. I'm, I'm, comp- you know, I'm comparing myself with someone and I feel like I'm failing, so I'll do this. You know, that's, you know, Hugh Grant, he said, I think that the reason Bridget Jones is the massive success is because it means that people watch it and see a woman who in the, in the world's eyes is almost failing and go, oh, I'm okay. It's like why Miranda is like a massive success. I love Miranda, by the way. It's just like, oh, she's kind of a failure, but kind of okay. That's why we love The Simpsons, because of identifying with various characters. Do you see what I'm saying? It's tapping into a deep thing into our soul. It's true. I think when we compare ourselves, and therefore so often either live in a, a place of pride, if we think we're doing well compared with someone else, or, or, or just a sense of condemnation, it absolutely kills us. It drives us. It depresses us. It can derail us. It distracts us. It's just, it's just huge. And the more that a church embraces growth and embraces going for it, the more that we will face this more and more. You can even compare yourselves and your spirituality with other Christians. We can look on the externals and think, hmm, and not understand what actually is going on in their hearts. It's terrifying. We can even compare ourselves with other churches. It's just this terrifying trap that James just helps us to just say you need to really just be aware of. But what's so kind about James is he, he, he wants us to sort of have a mirror to our souls and say, yeah, that's, that's something I can identify with. But then secondarily, what we see is this. It's what I've called the return of the promise. We actually saw it last time we looked at James. It's this incredible promise that rather than feeling a bit depressed about the fact that we're all kind of trapped by comparison, there is actually a way through. And he says here in verse 12, blessed, or you could say joyful, happy, content, satisfied, is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial, or let's make it specific, under the trial of comparison. For when he or she has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now, this is phenomenal. And this is something I just want to pray that God will help me because as a a culture, we don't tend to think about the next world. Okay? And what James does 
is he sticks a stick of truth dynamite into a comparison-riddled people, and he doesn't just put a little sticky plaster on it. He gives right into the heart of the issue a power to lift us out of a swirly, whirly world of constantly being exhausted by comparing ourselves. And he says, listen, you can be blessed if you are steadfast amidst the trial of comparison, the voices of comparison that will wage war against us. If you remain steadfast, you can be blessed because when you face God, you won't just sneak into heaven forgiven. You will come in and I, you know, I've got to be honest with you, I don't even really understand fully what this is saying, but it sounds phenomenal. You will receive the crown of life. Do you see what he's doing here? He's bringing back this promise, this return of the promise of joy, but this time he's rooting it in a future perspective that, oh my word, do we need to learn. I fear for my life when I read this word and the unbelievable weight the biblical writers give to living for that world to shape this world. And then I look at my life and it's just like, and the problem is we just don't believe it. I can sense it now. We don't really believe it. We go, it's just a nice metaphor. I'm not really going to receive a crown, clearly. What does that mean? It, sh- it shaped these guys' lives. We know that these guys who wrote the New Testament, most of them were martyred, and they were just not living, clinging on to this world. And yet so many of us are just ruled and dominated by a spirit of comparison, as if this world was everything. <laughs> and he says, you will just be double-minded, you'll be tossed around, you'll be constantly going, oh, well, she's got a, a boyfriend now. And, and oh, let me ask you this question. If you, this is a good, good, a good one. The praise test. How do you feel when someone you're vaguely close to gets praised about something that you would consider yourself good at? So, for example, some of you might be mums, and, and you hear another person, oh, that, that mum, she is just amazing. Isn't she amazing? And you, you try and join in. <laughs> yes. Oh, she's so wonderful. Home cooking, and everything's ironed, and secret. you're like, Ugh! what's going on there? What's going on there is the fact that you're in a comparison mindset. You can't actually join really in with the praise of the other person. And that's terrifying because that, what that's saying is, is that actually God needs to lift our gaze to the reality that there will come a moment where we will face him. And if we have learned to stood, to stand the tests of comparison that swirl around us, then we will receive a crown of life. I mean, I don't know if there's anything more inappropriate I can read in Scripture. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, who was God, hung naked on a cross for me in my place, taking my sin and shame, dying in my place. He's done everything for me. He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. And now he lives to intercede for me, is what the Bible says. And he's preparing a place for me. And when I get there... The Bible then says, he's going to give me his crown. I mean, I think there's only one person in the Bible I can really see that deserves a crown. And what's his name? It is Jesus. I I don't fully understand what this is saying. But it's saying that for those who learn 
to be steadfast. And when we say steadfast, we just mean resolute. It just means fixed in purpose. Can I say it means we're faithful? It means when we say we're going to be there, we're there. It means that we just keep going. We're not fickle. We're not consumer Christians. We're those who say, Lord, I want to fix my gaze and live a life of maturity. For as long as I have breath, I'm steadfast. I'm steadfast despite my marriage being a nightmare. I'm steadfast despite being my singleness being a nightmare. I'm steadfast despite pressures on my exams or pressures as a mum or pressures in the workplace. I'm steadfast. I keep going. He says, if you learn that, then the promise is as we, as we come before God, in a, in a way I can't conceive, he will give us the crown of life. As, as we love this scripture, 1 John 3, how great, <laughs> how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Dear friends, we are now children of God. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Did you catch that? As you have that hope, that when you meet God, and for some of us, that will be sooner than we can imagine, when we meet him, the hope is, is that we will be like him. And that hope, that truth, purifies us. It washes away our own vain efforts to try and live up to something in comparison with other people. It purifies us. It's phenomenal. It's a story of a king, a rich king who finds a blind orphan boy just wandering around the woods. And he says, I want you to come and live with me. And, and despite the boy being blind, he comes and lives with him and his clothes are changed. And for years he lives with the king. Now as his adopted father, he has access to libraries and palace and swimming pools and everything. And it's glorious. But then amazingly, when he turns 20, the king then pays for an operation on his eyes. And finally, stunningly, the child, now a man, is able to see the face of the king who has blessed him for so many years in so many amazing ways. He's finally able to see him and to see all the riches that he always had. That's a little picture of what it is. When we become a Christian, God gives us phenomenal things immediately. The Bible says that there really will come a moment when we will have our eyes seen and we will see him face to face. And we shall know him as he already knows us. And we will then realize the glory of that which he has given us. I love the writer John Don says, I shall rise from the dead. I shall see the Son of God, the Son of glory. And then I shall, I, I shall shine myself as that sh sun shines. I shall be united to the Ancient of Days, to God himself, who had no morning, who never began. No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live properly until I see God, and yet when I see him, I shall never die. This is the Christian hope. What is Christianity? This is orthodox Christianity, brothers and sisters. This is going to happen. You're going to be the one, we're going to see him, the king of glory. It's going to happen. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says the greatest moment in a Christian's life is his last one. Isn't that great? Oh, back of the net. It's amazing. The best moment in a Christian's life is his last one because he's the nearest to heaven. Hallelujah. When this grips your soul, everything changes. 
This is a promise from God. And he wants us to be those who live in the reality of it. (laughs) Then we're going to meet him face to face. And everything will change. And all the pain and the comparison that has weighed us down will be gone in an instant. Can I say this? Some of you are so gripped by comparison, you're terrified of committing into relationships. You're so idolizing that relationship that you're terrified if that person isn't perfect. I can't commit. When you get a glimpse (laughs) of your perspective with God, it frees you. It does free you to realize that person's never going to be perfect. God alone is perfect. God alone is our hope. Amen? It kind of frees you. I mean, you can marry someone and go, there's going to be so much brilliant stuff about this and some real rubbish stuff. Because I'm involved. So there's the rubbish. I really mean this, guys. Don't micro-analyze and look for perfection. You will be waiting forever. Fix your hope on him. Amen? I really mean, this is really practical. It's not just like, oh, with the crown of glory. No, it changes how you live. It, it gives you power to be free, to live this life in light of that life. But then what he does, which is so stunning, and with this we finish, he then gloriously, which is my third point, he really then just in that moment where we just filled our hearts aflame with the world to come, he then so brilliantly just nails what so many of us secretly fall into. When we're facing the comparison trap, he just, in the last few verses, you can summarize it like this. God is not the problem. Ever. We are. See, that's what he does. He kind of gives us, in the last few verses, like a a God-man-God sandwich. God's not the problem. You are. God's not the problem is what he does. And it's absolute power. For when we face trials of all kinds, but particularly the trial of comparison, which wages war and leads to pride for some of you when you think you're doing well, and just leads to condemnation for many of us when we feel like we're not measuring up, we're not good looking enough, we're not funny enough, we're not cool enough, whatever it might be that can wage war. He starts off by saying God's not the problem. Do you see it here? In verse 13, when, can I just say, when, when, I mean, when you start to really meditate on what's going to happen one day when you stop breathing, and you think about the unbelievable promises of Scripture, I think it's almost a humorous comment. He then says, let no one say when you're being tempted, this is kind of God's fault, that God's a meanie. It's like, think about what's happening right now in terms of you getting ready for eternity. Then you think about your life now. And he says this, so first of all, lesson 101 in the Christian life, let no one say, let no one say, I am being tempted by God. Don't do that. I, I think God loves honesty. I really do. And I, I love honesty and I'm hopefully pretty honest and that's good. But there are times in our lives where, the, where we will just be tempted to cross that line. When the pressure's on. And I've, I've been there. And, and you feel like God is, I just, he's, like, he's jabbing me. Do you know that? You feel like God's going, Ugh! and now this, and now this, and now this, and this, and this. And there's like big pressures, but even like a phone's broken, or I stubbed my toe, or the shower's cold. And you just in every conceivable, tell me you know what I'm talking about. You just feel, ah, ah. Now that's the moment. Listen, never say, don't say, God is tempting me. Don't go to that place. Be honest. 
This is really not, God, I'm finding this really hard right now. But he just warns us, don't say that for two reasons. Because number one, God can't be tempted. Why is he saying that? He's saying God is perfect. God is perfect. This is, this is amazing. He's wanting us to be encouraged by a limit in God. Do you know God has limits? There are certain things God can't do. He can't lie, for example. And he's saying, I want you to understand, God can't be tempted himself. He's perfect. The fact that God, it's not that he's choosing not to, to, to tempt you. He can't be tempted himself. He, he's perfect. You know, we, we can't conceive of that because we think in the world everyone has a price. Yeah? Lance Armstrong can be tempted. Tiger Woods can be tempted. Politicians regarding expenses can be tempted. Church leaders can be tempted. God can never be tempted. He can't be tempted. He's perfect. And therefore, he, he never tempts anyone. And if we de define temptation as this, the impulse to sin. It's not sin, it's the impulse to sin. God doesn't have that. So you see, when we're going through external difficulties, this is the reality, is God allows external trials that are tough. But listen, he always smiles. He always wants us to be those who grow through them, always. He's never willing us to fail. He allows external trials and difficulties, but he allows them with a fatherly love. I love it. Andrew Wilson says, he says, he says, God never punishes us. You see, punishment looks backwards towards the sin and judges the sin. Discipline looks forward and trains the sinner. God does allow trials and tests, but it's always God's loving, willing us, wanting us to do well. So when we're tempted, when we're tested, we never say, God, this is you trying to jab me and make me fail, even though I know it feels like that. He said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. God is completely perfect. God tempts no one. The problem is not God, is what he's saying. The problem is He then says this, doesn't he? Each person, i.e., every, I can't, I can't be responsible for how you handle the trials of your life. You are responsible. Each person. Listen, even if you've been sinned against, the Bible says don't let someone sin against you lead you into sin. That's what often happens. I feel sinned against. This person's done this. Therefore, I will respond with sin in response. I'm being tempted by God. He says, but each person is tempted, and there's a threefold step here, which is terrifying. He says this. He is tempted when he is lured and enticed. And it's graphic imagery. It's almost like dragged away by. You know those, you know the films when someone gets kidnapped, like in broad daylight, and people just jump out of a van and just drag them in and they're gone. It's almost that kind of image. Is that each person individually is lured and enticed, dragged away by how? His own desire. Now the word here, desire, is not negative. It's not saying it's a bad thing. This is the point. It normally starts as a normal thing, a good desire to have a relationship, to have a job, to have whatever it might be, to have a certain standard of living, to have a certain level of comfort. It's, it's, he's, and this is so brilliant because he's saying it starts with a normally a good desire. Most people don't have a, 
an obvious heart for really obvious evil desire. I just want to go and kill someone. It doesn't start normally like that. He's saying a desire. It's subtle. The thing that you, after God, most want. And it's normally a good thing. But, he said, start, this is the, is, is you get lured and enticed. You get dragged away by your own desire. To have that job or that position in church or that role or to have that resolution to the tension that you're feeling or to have that sense of dignity restored after that person has done that to you. They're not wrong, but he says this is the path. It starts with a desire and then he says this, his person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire and then desire when it has conceived. It gives birth to sin. It's this vivid image where we allow ourselves, this desire to become, to go from being a good thing to becoming a God thing. A thing that we have to have. A thing that completely occupies our thinking. Completely defines our identity. It becomes this massive churning thing at the back of our lives. And then it gives birth to sin. The desire for things to be done well at work, it, it just flows into gossip or in church. You know, or, or just the things that we desire flow into something negative. That desire for a job becomes workaholism. Or, or that desire for a relationship means that you just jump into the first thing that comes your way without even remotely consulting God. Or that desire for status means you will just pursue whatever it costs to get that. That desire for success means that you will fall into cutting corners and doing things in a way that you know doesn't honor God. There's a million of different examples. That desire for approval means you will not confront that person you know needs to be. And so you lie when you meet with them and you say everything's actually fine. I've done that one before. I won't ask for a show of hands. Desire gives birth to sin. And then sin, it says here, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. It's this image. And what he's doing is here lovingly, it's a little bit so sobering, I know, but it's helping us to just self-diagnose. To say, Good desires can, 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 when they don't always happen in the way you want, we can allow a test of God to be converted into a temptation. We can respond to the external test that God is allowing to grow us. We can respond to that and we can convert it internally into a temptation to sin. I'm going to now therefore slip into this. And, and it's subtle is what he's saying. You get lured and dragged away by it. And, and I, I, I know so many people for where it's dramatic and obvious and that's happened or very subtle. And I've seen it in my life. And he says, listen, and then he just says this in verse 16, do not be deceived. Because many of us as we hear this go, I hope the person next door to me is making sure they're listening to this so they don't get lured and enticed. He says, don't think this is about someone else. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. You see the punch and then the love. I love you, but I love you enough to say to you. That is why accountability and community and being discipled by someone and being in a small group and elderships, being connected with other elderships and apostolic men and older couples speaking to the lives of younger couples and singles. being a, This is why it's so key, guys. So we don't get deceived. Because we can all get deceived is what he's saying. Don't be deceived. But then he finishes just in the way that James does so often. He then lifts our gaze again. God's not the problem. You are. But then here he goes again. 
with stunning beauty, two verses that can change our life. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is not because you worked hard. It's not because you're really intelligent. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because of your family upbringing or your culture or where you're from or anything. It is every good gift is only from one place. It's from above. It's from above. You see, when we are locked into comparison, this is what's happening. Yes, I know I've got 10,000 blessings, but I'm going to focus on this one thing I don't have. That's what's happening. And that's why the old adage, count your blessings one by one, might be old-fashioned, but I tell you what, it will change your life. It really will. Don't ever start prayer times with, just, Lord, I thank you, I thank you, I thank you. Do you know, Romans 1 defines the problem with the whole of humanity. It says this. It says, because they did not give glory to God and they did not give thanks. Do you understand how powerful that is? And we live in a horrendous nation that drains a thankful heart out of you and me. And we have to go to war on it. I really mean it. We have to be almost, I want to say aggressive, but you know what I'm saying. You know, apps, I love apps. Watch them. Everything's free, and it breeds a heart. That it, I, I, just give me, give me an example. Five years ago, you would have bought a digital radio like for 100 quid, and you'd be like, wow, I've got like Jazz FM. I love jazz. You'd be like, wow, I would be thankful. Now, in 10 seconds, I, I, I download an app like AccuRadio, for example, and get like 20 different radio stations, probably 60, and I don't even bat an eyelid. And I'm just like, yeah, fine, great. What's next? What's my next app? What's my next free thing that I think I kind of deserve? Do you understand? I like apps, by the way. I'm not having a go at them. I'm saying we turn it into just another thing that I'm, I'm entitled to. Yeah? It breeds on us. I have a motto for our little family. Me, Josie, Daisy, and Lily, and Poppy this. We are grateful, not grumpy. I mean it. Because it just seeps into their souls, the world we live in. What have we got for tea, mum? Spaghetti. Stop. Stop right there. No, 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 no. Most children in the world don't have clothes. They don't have a house. They don't have a mum and dad. They don't have anything to eat. Stop it. Stop it right now and be grateful. And I'm preaching to myself because I can live the whole of my life wagging my finger at God about what I don't have. All the time you say, every good gift. Why is it we never ask the question, how come, despite the fact that this world is so filled with rebels against God, how come we get so much blessing? We never ask that way around, do we? We never say, how come? (laughs) How come I have a car to drive in and shoes to wear? Every good gift, it comes from above. It comes from our Father. It comes from Him. It's absolutely profound. And can I say... I absolutely love the fact that I think generally as a church, we are a fairly grateful people. But let us never take our foot off the gas. There will be things we get wrong as elders. You know that. There will be difficulties and tensions. We love constructive, positive feedback. But let us preserve the thankful heart that every good gift comes from God. I've had a bit bit of a privilege to travel recently. And I found myself, when they've asked about the church, I found myself freshly aware of the unbelievable blessings of God. Yeah, we have a, a discipleship culture where we really want everyone to be, oh, you don't have that. It's going to take, oh, and we really, small groups. You know, most people absolutely adore their small groups. It's about relationship. It's not form. Yeah, and, and actually, yeah, although many 
people in the UK, no one under the age of 30 seems to go to church. But yeah, God's blessing the church massively. And, and actually, yeah, we haven't stopped growing in three years. And yeah, God's going to build, giving us a four million pound building. And, and his presence is with us when we meet. And the and list goes on and on. And I think, wow. Yeah, I mean, there's always things that aren't great. But <laughs> I mean, let me give you an example. Tim. I mean it. Tim, one of the other elders. He is a freak when it comes to his intelligence in the best way. I, a couple of years ago at Wine and Wisdom, Tim, it's a bit funny, Tim's team didn't basically turn up. So Tim was the team, apart from one other person. He came second. <laughs> he is, I really mean this with all my heart, Tim is an incredibly bright guy. And he pours hundreds, thousands of hours into serving this church. And I know you love him. I don't want to make him embarrassed. But it just struck I get scared at the thought if he wasn't co-leading this church with me. <laughs> I dread to think where we would be. God loves to do that. He loves to grow in us and continue in us a heart of gratefulness. One guy, a father of someone in this church, in this room, said to me recently, my daughter joined your church some time ago. She said to me, she has not once ever heard anyone ever grumble. Not a negative comment ever. Wow. That's amazing. There are times where we've got to be honest in a constructive, loving way. I know that. But to have someone just say, yeah, that's the atmosphere. That's the culture that is being established. A grateful one because every good and perfect gift comes from above. And there is one gift that I wonder if you spotted it, which we will finish with. One gift, which all those other gifts I've said, those good things, they're small g. This gift is capital G. Did you spot where it was? It's the word father. It's the word father. They don't just, these gifts don't just come randomly. You know, like when you go to Argos and you put your little thing in and then you just wait at the tent and then just someone randomly gives you your thing. It's not that they just, ra- they come from a father. They come from a father in heaven. And as we've recently been reminded again, when you consider the fact that for the entire Old Testament, you could summarize it really like this. Because humanity is sinful, you can't have access to the heavenlies. You can't access God. The temple reinforced that. Only one man could enter once a year, and even then it was a bit hairy. He might not make it out. God can't be accessed. The heavenly realm, you can't access. That's why it says in the Old Testament, oh, that you would rend, that you would part the heavens and come down. There was this massive ache throughout the Old Testament, of God, if only you were accessible, if only we could know you. And then we see at Jesus' baptism this absolutely staggering truth where it just says, as Jesus was baptized, the first and last man ever to walk on earth who is both fully man and fully God, it says that the heavens parted. And the Father said over him, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And as we look at that picture, we see in staggering contrast to the rest of humanity, we see this extraordinary relationship of a father like no other with a son like no other. We see this incredible picture of the father's profound, everlasting pleasure over his son. He hadn't even done nothing by that point, but the father delights in him. His delight in the son wasn't even over his obedience. It was just the father's delight. A father who would never be cross at his son. He would never be grumpy. He would never be absent. A father who would never get tired of Jesus' prayers to him. A father who would never say, look, Jesus, can you just go to the other side of the, of the heavenlies? I'm, I'm just a bit sick of your praying. 
We see here this picture of Jesus and the Father and we glimpse it and we recognize the incredible everlasting pleasure of the Father over the Son. And then the twist with Christianity is that as we see here, unbelievably for Christians, we get to call him our Father. To be a Christian means you are in Christ. So your assurance, your power to overcome comparison. Your amazing dynamite truth, that means even if you see yourself like a lowly brother and you're always seeing yourself as a failure, or whether you're like me, you kind of are like that, and then sometimes you find yourself in the other position, you're kind of judging others, it's this weird thing. God just says that is the wrong place to find your identity. Your identity is in Christ. He is your Father now. And what is true of Jesus is, 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 is true of us. That just as we can look at Jesus and the Father and know the Father's pleasure is intense and robust over Jesus for all eternity, we know for sure that he will never turn his face away. He will never not be listening to us. We have an open heaven now and for eternity. We know now that in Christ, because of Christ's righteousness, because of Christ, we are those that as Christians can not just one day when we meet him go, wow, he's giving us the crown of life. But friends, right now, in this instant, we can be those that recognize because of what Jesus has done, because of who we are in, because we are now adopted into the family of God. As Julian reminded us, we have the same level of Trinitarian intimacy. What a phrase that Jesus has. We're in him. Isn't that amazing? That is the true gift. That's the gift to be to call him Father which above everything else ultimately enables us to say, Lord, I might feel pretty rubbish. And you know what? In human terms, we may be. It's not about self-esteem. It's about Jesus' esteem.